Well, if, you're, uh, if you haven't been here uh, in a while or uh, you're a guest, um, David Burroughs, our senior pastor, is taking the month of August off of preaching, both Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, and that's why you haven't seen him. Uh, and I've had the, the privilege and the opportunity to, to be with you these last few weeks. Um, we've been in this little mini-series uh, looking at the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, we're using John 14 as our home base uh, John 14, the first seven verses. And uh, if, you're, if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn there, we're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 14 and some other areas in John as well. Uh, but it will also be on the screen. Uh, so just as a way of, of refresher, and just because it's such a rich and awesome passage, let's just look at it once again. John 14, verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at this exclusive claim of Christ as being the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through him, and we've kind of broken that up into three segments. Uh, The first week we looked at Just the idea of him being the way, that he said, I am the only way. I am the road. I am the path. There is no other way. And we talked about how that is so countercultural within our society and our culture today. We talked last week about Jesus being the truth that he claimed to be. And all of this, remember, is an I am statement. And so there were seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, This is number six of seven. And it's important that we remember that when we come to an I am statement, this is very, really strong language that is being used here. This is emphatic language. Jesus is very strongly pointing uh, us to a certain truth. Not only is he borrowing this truth from the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am who I am, Jesus is taking that and applying it to himself. He's saying, I am God. So Jesus is putting himself on the same level of God. He's saying, I am God. And he's emphatically saying, I and I alone, not only am I God, but I and I alone am the way. And I and I alone am the truth, and I and I alone am the life. This is strong language. And so last week we looked at him saying, I am the truth. And we talked about just in our culture, I think it's just worth, in case you weren't here, it's just worth noting in a little bit of recap here on what our culture defines as truth, is that there is no truth. At least not abstract truth. At least not absolute truth. You see, truth in our culture today is relative to the individual. And we talked about the danger of, of moral relativism that really has plagued our society, has really plagued our culture And it's become the new standard for how our culture defines truth. There is no truth. Because moral relativism says there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute authority. Your truth is your truth. 
My truth is my truth, and those two things should not cross. If you have a truth that is fine for you, but it is not a truth for me. If I have a truth, it is my truth, but it is not necessarily your truth. It is relative to the individual. And this has shaped our culture in such a negative way that it's completely flipped our morality. Here's what I mean by that. If I say that I have a truth, and that truth is not binding on you, it's only binding on me, to, this, to the culture, I'm viewed as a good person. I'm viewed as, as sensitive to other needs. I'm viewed as being tolerant to other people's ideas. I'm, be, I'm viewed as being a moral person. But if now I claim to have a truth, and that truth is not only binding to me, but it's binding to you, to our culture, I'm claimed as a bad person. I'm, claimed, I, I'm, I'm labeled a bigot. I'm labeled insensitive to the other needs of other people. I'm even labeled immoral if I claim absolute truth. And we talked about this is, this is the default in our culture today. I made the statement that moral relativism is the battleground on which we will fight for truth, God's truth as a church. It is the standard of truth within our culture today. That your truth is yours and my truth is mine don't put the monkey of your truth on my back. And we talked about how this really does not fit within the realm of reality because truth has to do with reality. It has to. If it's true, it has to be real. Truth has to fit within the realm of reality and where moral relativism fails is because it self-contradicts. And I gave you the example of how moral relativism says there is absolutely no absolutes. And we all see that that's an issue, right? I gave you the example of we will not tolerate intolerance. Because what moral relativism is doing is making an absolute claim. By you telling me that my truth is only good for me and it is not good for you, you are giving a truth statement. You are making a claim that you want me and others to believe. Do you see the contradiction? It does not fit within the realm of reality. And truth has to fit within reality, specifically in God's reality. And Jesus said, I and I alone am the absolute truth. And today we come to the last part of our, our study together and we look at the life. The life. And I think if you, uh, if you go to if you were just to go to a, a street corner and just start asking people, what do, you, what do you think of when you think of life? What comes to your mind? What's the first thing you think of? Or what, 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 how would you answer that? What is life? What is life is an important question. I think a lot of people would say, well, I think just existence, right? Like to, to be. Just having existence is life. That makes sense. You have to exist to have life. I think certainly some people would say reproduction Maybe you would picture a, a, a child being born, that miracle of life, and you'd say, that's life. Isn't that right, Brother Mike? Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. You, you're probably looking at pictures right now. Pay attention, Mike. I know you, everybody knows you have a grandbaby. Yeah. Everybody knows. <laughs> I saw, Mike, Mike and Linda were, were just away visiting Jonna and, and, and baby Nora. And uh, I saw, uh, on Sunday, I saw Mike for the first time since he'd been gone, and I, I came up to him and I said, Mike, you just have a glow about you, you know? Because he does. He's just grinning from ear to ear. I mean, I'm sure all of you have already seen a picture of Nora. If not, it's coming, okay? 
but uh, yeah, I'm sure Mike's thinking of that. But yeah, reproduction, uh, just, just procreation, I mean, just birth and life in general. I think a lot of people, some people might answer even, even past the physical things. They might say, well, experience, maybe joy, happiness. In my experience, that's, that's life in its fullness. And we're going to see how Jesus is all of those things and more. But when we talk about life, I think the bigger question that we need to ask is, what is the meaning of life? Like, what is the purpose? What is the meaning? And that is a question that a lot of people have and that stumps a lot of people. And so what we've been doing uh, with this series is we've been looking at two different options. We talked about the way, we talked about the truth, and now we're talking about the life. And what we looked at is what the culture would say and what God would say. And we would hold those two things up and we'd say, let's compare and contrast. And so if we're looking at how the culture would answer the question, what is the meaning of life, what would our culture say? So I did some research and I tried to, to think about what, 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 what was our culture thinking in this? What, what, what source could I go to to, to point us to uh, about what our culture might think? So I thought, well, let's look at, let's look at, uh, let's look at psychology and, and let's look at uh, philosophy and some of the leaders in that field. And so I began to do some research this week, and I came across an interesting article in, in Psychology Today. This is from a leading psychologist professor, Oxford University. And he is writing on the issue of what is the meaning of life. And I want to share a couple of these snippets with you, and I think this echoes our culture. He says this, The question of the meaning of life is perhaps one that we would rather not ask. For fear of the answer or lack thereof. So he even admits right off the bat that that's a question that's, uh, I don't know, we want to go there because we, we fear the answer we might get and it's not against our views or it's against our views or maybe we don't get an answer that we like or there's no answer at all. He goes on, and I'm going to read some more, but he goes on to talk about how the default mechanism when we talk about the meaning of life for humanity usually tends to come down to a transcendence outside of ourselves. That human beings in general, when they're asked about the meaning of life, they usually will go to some transcendent God-type figure to help answer that question. He even acknowledges that. He talks about that, and then he comes back around, and here's what he says after talking about that. In short, even if God exists, and even if he had an intelligent purpose in creating us, we do not know what this purpose might be. Whatever it might be, we would rather be able to do without it, or at least to ignore it or discount it. So he is admitting, even if there was a God, and even if this God was an intelligent God and he had a purpose and meaning for our life, I think it's best for us to just discount that. He goes on to say, the reason why he thinks we should discount that. He says this, For unless we can be free to become the authors of our own purpose and purposes, our lives may have, at worst, no purpose at all, and at best, only some unfathomable and potentially trivial purpose that is not of our own choosing. Ah, now we're seeing what's really going on here. Individualism is coming to the top, is rising to the surface, Unless we can be free, our lives, our purpose, our choosing 
Then he comes back, he circles, he talks about a couple things, he circles back around to this topic later and he says this, so whether or not God exists, whether or not he gave us a purpose, and whether or not there is an internal afterlife, we are better off creating our own purpose and purposes. And then at the end of his statement, at the end of the whole article, this is the big crux. I mean, this is the punch in the face that he gives. Here's his answer. And so the meaning of life, of our life, is that which we choose to give it. This is from the height of modern thinking at the highest academic level in our culture, in our society. Oxford University, professor and doctor of psychiatry and philosophy. And what he is ultimately doing is he is admitting the chief sin of humanity. I want to be the God of my life. I want to be the God of my own life. Individualism. What is the meaning of life according to the highest academia within our culture? It's whatever I choose for it to be. And we've talked, this is the same thing with truth and the same thing with the way. Individualism in our society and in our culture takes over. Don't you dare tell me what truth is. Don't you dare tell me there's only one way. I make the way. This truth is true for me, not true for you. It's individualism. And I, we kind of mentioned this last week, but our culture no longer looks outside of ourself to some higher transcendence to help answer the question of what is the meaning of life. As a whole, we no longer do that. Instead, what we do by default is we look inward. What do I feel? What do I experience? And our experience becomes our reality. Our day-to-day, our week-to-week, our year-to-year, our experience becomes our truth. Our experience becomes our life. And we have full control of it. Individualism. But Jesus says, I am God. And I and I alone am the life. And so in order for us to get a better, maybe hopefully a better understanding of this concept, let's turn back in John. Uh, to John chapter 1, the very beginning. If you're in your Bibles, John chapter 1, this is the prologue. We're going to look at John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. I love this prologue. I think it's the best prologue of any book by far. It's just so poetic, so rich in theology. Uh, It's a synopsis for the entire gospel. And it's just awesome. And I think it will hopefully help us see some things that we need to see. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And I know that many of you know this. I know that you've heard this before, that they're using a term word, and that that's referring to Jesus Christ. You, you should know that, that you can kind of just insert Jesus' name in the text and it still fits. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. We get that. But I think it's even more complex than that because of the term that is used, which is logos. Now, logos is a complex term. You may have heard of this term before, but that's the term that John is using. He is saying, in the beginning was the logos. 
Now, this is a complex term because it's complex in different arenas. It, was, it meant one thing for the Greek audience. It meant a completely different thing for the Jewish audience. It had all kinds of different meanings. Uh, to the Greek audience, it, it, it had to do with this idea of a divine, some type of divine thought or reason that was out there that existed. The beginning, the creation, all this divine reason, your thought and your own reason, all of that kind of summed up into just some term we gave, they gave for, uh, we'll just say logos. But to the, to the Jewish audience, it meant something different. And I, I, I think it's intentional that John is using that here. He's going to do that same thing with the term for life that we'll see in a minute, but he does that with this term logos. Now, I think what's helpful for us to see how John approaches the rest of his gospel, what he does in the rest of his gospel, is he quotes the Old Testament, often. So what does that mean? That has to have some significance. The word in the Old Testament would have meant something to the Jewish audience. They would have associated that. They would have thought about that. It would have made them wrestle with their thoughts. And, and, and in the Old Testament, the Word of God is connected to God's activity. Uh, his activity in creation, His activity in revelation, His activity in healing and deliverance and salvation, all of the above. It was God's activity. Like, for example, the Lord is said to speak to the prophets. He speaks to the prophets. Uh, the Word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Uh, we know from the creation account, obviously, that the word of the Lord, it was by the word of the Lord that the heavens were made. I mean, he just opens his mouth and the sun comes out. He just speaks it and it happens. We see that in Psalm 36, Genesis 1, 6, and 9. God simply speaks and his powerful word creates. Not only in creation, uh, and not only in revelation and how he speaks to the prophets and through the prophets, but also in deliverance and judgment. Uh, when some of Israel was ill to the point, to the brink of death, it was said that God sent forth his word and healed them. This agent of God's healing went forth and healed. And God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression and, and activity in creation, revelation, in healing, in deliverance, in judgment. And here John is saying, that word I am taking and I'm placing on Jesus Christ. He is that. He is God's agent of creation. He is God's agent of revelation. He is God's final revelation. He is God's agent of judgment and of deliverance and of salvation. He is the logos of God. And so this term he uses, logos, would have just, I mean, Greek or Jew, they would have just, whoa, 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 whoa. And then John is saying, that's Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the agent of creation, like we just talked about. I had the, the awesome opportunity to go on the trip to Israel with the team that went, and I remember sitting on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine the emotion and just the thought of like, 
This is where that happened. <laughs> like Jesus just stood up from a sleep, taking a nap, and just said, stop. And this, this raging force, this storm just obeyed his words and just stopped in an instant. And then I remember thinking, not only that, but Jesus created the Sea of Galilee. It's all for him. It's all through him. It's all by him. He is the agent of creation. He is God's logos personified. It goes on in verse 4 and 5, and I think this is more where it's helpful for our text today to say this, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if you've been around our church for any time, you've probably heard us talk about this, this idea for life, this term for life uh, often. Um, I know pastor has talked about it several times. I got to preach on the I, I am the bread of life, got to talk about this. But it's important for us to know that the Greeks had two definitions or two words that they would use for life. One was bios, which, was, uh, which is where we get our term for biology. Uh, bios was, was simply means the stuff of life, the material stuff of life. Uh, bios is living as opposed to dying, being alive as opposed to being dead. It's the technical reality of life. That's bios, biological life. The other term they use is the term zoe. Zoe is not biological life. It's not life opposed to death, uh, but it's all of the experience of life. It's a holistic approach to life. It's all of the riches of really living. All that is the fullness of life. Not just physical, but everything. And that's the word that is used here. is zoe. So it says, in him there was zoe. In the logos of God, there was fullness, whole completeness of life. And yes, this is the same term in John 14 in our text, our home text, where Jesus says, I and I alone am the Zoe. Complete fullness of life in a holistic approach. I, al I alone am Zoe. The fullness of life. Wholeness, full scope, personified, the Word of God made flesh. The Logos and the Zoe made flesh. Life in the flesh. And Jesus is said to be the complete embodiment of life. How is that? How is He the complete embodiment of life? Well, I want you to see a couple things. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus Christ, the Creator, provides physical life. He is the agent of creation. So he provides, as the logos of God, he provides physical life. All things were made through him, by him, and for him. Jesus Christ, the creator, provides physical life. But it does not stop there, because he's the zoe. He's the complete picture. So it doesn't just stop with physical life. Next, you need to see this. Jesus Christ, the redeemer, provides spiritual life. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as the Lamb of God, as the Redeemer, He now provides spiritual life. As the one who could take away our sin and our penalty. 
by His substitution on the cross for us. So not only physical life, but spiritual life. And not only that, but Jesus Christ, the Savior, provides eternal life. It goes even beyond our physical existence on into eternity. And as the Savior, as the risen King, He is able to provide eternal life. In one of His other great I Am statements, in John 11, He is talking with Martha about the death of His friend Lazarus. Remember the story? And He asks her, do you believe that He he will be raised? And she said, yeah, I, I believe that he will be raised on the day of resurrection, on that day when that happens. They believed in, the, in that resurrection. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I and I alone am the resurrection and the Zoe. And he raises Lazarus. And as the risen lamb who was slain, who defeats sin and death and hell, He is the Savior who provides eternal life. So He is, as Creator, provides physical life. As Redeemer, provides spiritual life. As Savior, provides eternal life. He is the full embodiment of life, the Zoe. So here's, as we kind of wrap up this little mini-series, what I want us to, to think about as we close up. I I understand, and I know what we've done is we've taken two concepts and we've said, here's what the culture says and here's what God says, and let's look at those two things and what makes most sense. And what do we want to hang our hat on? And we understand that our culture is very against this idea of exclusivity. Because of this individualism and the moral relativism that so plagues our, our society. But... Here's the reality. If Jesus Christ is the Zoe, if he is the full embodiment of life, physical life, spiritual life, eternal life, and if Jesus Christ is the truth of God, then he has to be the only way. It would not make any sense for Jesus Christ to be the life in God, the truth about God, and there be some other way to get to God. Now, it starts with the way and then goes to the truth and the life and the text. And I think that throws a lot of people off because they think, oh, the way, I'm out. You already said you're the only way. No, no, keep going because if he's the truth and he's the life, then he is the only way. There can't be no other way. And we have the task as the church today in in spite of the moral relativism that we're going to face, and in spite of the individualism that is in our society, and in in us too, we got it. We have the responsibilities still to stand firm for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It would be unloving for us to not claim anything else. Love is not just tolerance and acceptance. Sometimes love is Difficult, and it is real and it is hard. And it's unloving for us to say, oh yeah, there's some other, yeah, just keep, just keep trying to do your best. Keep trying to earn what you think you can earn. That is not a loving response. No, it is Jesus Christ alone. That is the most loving thing I can tell you. And let me just tell you, when I'm talking to an unbeliever, I understand the culture that they're in. We have to understand the culture that they're in. 
So when we're talking to them about the exclusivity of Christ, what are some things in which we can find some common ground? That's what I like to do. And I just tell you, the one place I usually go to find common ground with an unbeliever is the depravity of man. That's where I go. Because you got to be completely ignorant to not see the depravity in the human race as a whole. Right? So if we're talking about, okay, because remember, they're, they're about individualism. So if I can go to an unbeliever and say, okay, let, let me just put forth two ideas. And you choose, right? See what I did there? I fed their individualism. Uh, you choose what you think is best. Let me put forth the world's way or the culture's way or man's way, and let me put forth God's way. Now, the, the culture's way is going to be about self. self. It's going to be about self. Individualism. Moral relativism. That I, I, I know the way. Don't tell me the way. I know the way. I make the way. Don't put your truth on me. I, my truth is my truth. And my life is my experience. That's what you're going to go with. But God says, no, this is the way, and this is the truth, and this is the life, and it's in his son, Jesus Christ. So do you want to trust? And then what I'll say is, let's find some common ground here. You're telling me that you look out over the scope of humanity, and you don't see brokenness? You're telling me that you look within yourself, deep in the depths of your soul, and you don't see brokenness there, and that's what you want to rely on. You want to rely on human individualism. That's what you're going to rely on. Because I can find some common ground with an unbeliever. They, listen, you, like I said, you've got to be completely ignorant to not look out at the scope of humanity and not go, something is wrong with us. To our core, something, is, and, and with me as well, something is broken in there. And that's what you're going to go with. But here God says, in my son Jesus Christ is the fullness of life, the embodiment and holistic approach to life, and he is the absolute truth of God, and therefore God has made no other way but through him. There they are. Weigh the cost. And in your individualism, make your mind up. See, we can find some common ground and we can still stand firm on the exclusivity of Christ because it is the loving thing to do. To boldly proclaim there is no other way to the Father but through the Son. And thank God that we have come to that realization and thank God that we have that point of view. I and I alone am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the message we are to steward and we are to battle against even in the midst of moral relativism in our land. And we can do this. We can do this. I thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to be with you these last few weeks. It's been a real joy. I uh, just want to remind you, uh, next week, uh, we have uh, Turning Point coming, and they're going to share at Grow about their ministry. You need to be here for that. You need to hear about that. Uh, it's going to be a great time. And then I know Awana kicks off officially next week, and so we want you to, to be a part of that. Uh, I think even next week is a, a food truck fiesta. There you go. So come hungry as well. We got all kinds of stuff. And then uh, the week after that, the Wednesday after that, the 24th, uh, we have a baptism uh, service. 
that's always something we look forward to, that celebration, that time of celebration. We already have uh, several people lined up for that. We look forward to that. And then, and then the next Wednesday in September, uh, Pastor will be back to lead us on into the fall. And so we got a lot of great things coming up. Uh, so glad you were able to be here with us. And with that, I will dismiss you. God bless you. And have a good evening. You're dismissed.